Hi, and welcome back to What Remains. I'm your host, MK. This episode, I'll be looking at the legacy of how cadavers have been used in U.S. medical research and training, with a particular emphasis on how marginalized groups have historically been targeted by these body collection practices. Grave robbing is intimately tied to the use of cadavers in medicine, especially in the U.S. and the U.K. In the 19th century, medical studies in the U.S. expanded rapidly and the need for bodies outpaced the available supply. Bodies could be donated, but in the previous century, post-mortem dissection was a common punishment for criminals, so the stigma that developed surrounding donating your body prevented many from wanting to be associated with the practice. Medical students began digging up bodies for research and to sell, mainly of black people. Seeing how lucrative this could be, body snatchers, sometimes jokingly called resurrectionists, started making a business of grave robbing. Public outrage cropped up a few times around these grave robbings, but the only times it really gained public awareness was when white bodies were stolen. One such instance was the 1788 New York Doctors' Riot that started as a result of reports that a white woman's body had been stolen and used for dissection. By this point in time, theft of poor and non-white bodies was a commonly known practice. An article in JSTOR Daily by Allison Mayer discusses that grave robbing by and for medical schools of both enslaved and freed black bodies was so normalized that in many instances, complaints were filed with local police against anyone who tried to use force to prevent the theft. She says, quote, an 1834 incident is related in which a farmer named James Oldham heard a commotion one night and found five men exhuming a recently deceased enslaved person buried on his property. Enraged, he drove them off, firing his gun at two who lingered, hitting one in the back. The following day, the students filed a complaint and a warrant was issued for Oldham's arrest, charging him with feloniously and of purpose shooting and maiming a student. Black community members petitioned medical schools repeatedly to stay away from their graveyards, but many white people supported the use of black people's bodies in medical study, fearing their loved ones would be stolen instead. Massachusetts was the first to enact legislation that would begin curving grave robbing in 1831, which allowed unclaimed bodies to be used for dissection. New York followed in 1854, with other states taking as long as the early 20th century to put their own laws on the books. Once these laws were in place, grave robbing ventures started to die out, but grave desecration was still frequently overlooked in the decades following these laws being enacted. With new laws allowing for unclaimed bodies to be used came other demographics who were exploited after death through medical research, though this frequently still included black Americans. As mentioned, historically prisoners were dissected as a way to punish them even after death, but even contemporarily, prisoners are more likely than average to choose to have their bodies donated for research rather than have their family pay for a burial or cremation. Disabled people or people with uncommon medical conditions were often pushed to donate their bodies to science, and the repatriation of indigenous bodies is still an ongoing battle, with many schools and museums around the country to return native bodies, even after the passing of the Native American Graves Protection and Repatriation Act. Poverty was also a significant factor. Wealthier people could afford anti-grave robbing technology like iron coffins, grave guns, or grave torpedoes, or even higher security for the recently buried. 
but poor people had little time or money for any effective deterrent methods. And for the unhoused, those without families, recent immigrants, and others whose bodies weren't claimed, they had no ability to decide what was best spiritually, morally, or philosophically for themselves after death. Poverty is still a significant factor in who gets to ponder whether they will donate their body or not. And as with prisoners' bodies, the higher rate of choosing to donate their bodies is likely tied to the fact that poverty is a significant indicator of whether you will be in prison long enough to die there. I also talked about this in the first episode in regards to the Uniform Anatomical Gifts Act, but many funeral homes that work with body brokers will incentivize donation by reducing or removing fees for burial or cremation, and many medical research institutes will cremate bodies for free after their research is complete. The median funeral cost in the U.S. as of 2019 was $7,640, according to the National Funeral Directors Association, with over half of that being for embalming, processing, and transporting the body, and undefined service fees. It can be difficult for families who lack that kind of money to turn down the financial relief that donation offers. In the article, In the U.S. Market for Human Bodies, Almost Anyone Can Dissect and Sell the Dead, Reuters interviews Illinois hospice social worker Don Vander Kolk, who frequently works with families facing difficult financial decisions after death. She said, quote, People who have financial means get the chance to have the moral, ethical, and spiritual debates about which method to choose. But if they don't have money, they may end up with the option of last resort, body donation, end quote. Race and racism, however, are by far the biggest factors behind overall death inequality in the U.S. A long-standing and persistent issue in death inequality is how deeply segregated the funeral industry Passed on, a novel by Carla F. C. Holloway examines the deeply racist history of how funeral homes have operated and how that has led to a continuation of separate and lesser quality of death care for Black Americans. Holloway recounts how Black funerals historically weren't held in the front rooms of funeral parlors, with attendees having to go in through the back or even have the funeral in the lot behind the funeral home, despite paying just as much for the funeral as white patrons. Holloway says the common phrase between black family and friends after death was who's got the body, expressing an immediate concern that a loved one's body would not be handled properly without a carefully arranged death care plan, and highlighting the awareness of class and cultural clashes that uniquely impacted black Americans when trying to bury a loved one. With the wealth gap between white and black Americans, community ties became a way of funding funerals and common practice in many black community churches, especially in the South. Burial associations meant to alleviate financial and social obligations following a death began as early as the 1700s. Benefits of funeral associations operated similarly to burial insurance and offered the funds to include culturally significant displays of respect, like badges, white gloves, and high-quality coffins. Black funeral homes became a way for black funerals to be held with a deserved amount of respect and dignity for the dead and the attendees. But the wealth disparity persisted, so when black undertakers began competing with white undertakers for black business in the 20th century, the white funeral homes, who had already secured white business in the area, were able to offer deeper discounts to undermine their black competitors and secure black customers as well. One such example was children's funerals. Black child mortality was higher than white child mortality, 
and with so few who had insurance or money set aside for their children's death, these funerals were especially financially taxing. And because white children dying was less common, fronting the cost of a child's burial was a sound financial decision for white funeral homes so that they could gain the loyalty of a family who was likely to have another funeral in the future. Black funeral homes, on the other hand, primarily had only black clients and rarely had the financial flexibility to front such a loss of income for the sake of more business down the road. Black undertakers also faced violence from white competitors for threatening an income that was considered more secure, given the higher rates of violence and mortality black Americans faced. Holloway describes how deep and persistent the fear of exploitation after death was in black communities in the U.S. She talks about a common fear that the caskets black family members were buried in would be dug up and resold to other black mourners. Holloway points out that there's no evidence that this particular form of exploitation occurred anywhere in the U.S., but this deep understanding of how their bodies were both devalued and commodified in death manifested in this fear, and Holloway recounts a story of an upstate New York family that would habitually bring hammers or axe handles to a burial to dent the casket so that it couldn't be resold as new like they feared. Classism and racism, and especially the intersection of classism and racism, have been the underlying thread of who historically has been afforded the right to determine what bodily autonomy, mourning, and funerary rights means to them. Western medicine in general has been deeply unequal, primarily benefiting the most privileged and preying on the most disadvantaged, and trends of this nature persist into the present. When discussing advances in biomedicine, we must honor these unwilling sacrifices that have gotten us to where we are and continue to address the inequality for both the living and the dead. Thank you for joining me. Next episode, we'll cover body brokering and the for-profit end of body donation. Talk to you next time.